musicians. Well, over the last little while, I've been focusing on this idea of faithful presence. Out there, when we get out of church on, on Sundays, we go into what you might loosely call the marketplace, and I, and I use that term very broadly. It can be the place where we work. If we're not in paid employment, it might be at home. We might be a house husband or a housewife. Uh, as you know, Jeanette was a housewife. She was a stay-at-home mum, actually right up until our girls were married. They were married seven weeks apart, so not, not that much difference there. But um, she, she was fully employed in a, in a meaningful and rewarding way. So this is not necessarily about being out in the paid uh, workforce, along with nearly 12 million other Australians. It's about engaging wherever God has placed you from Monday through to Saturday. So it could be when you're associated with a sporting club, down at the, um, at the gym. You know, all of us are going to be encountering people who have never had a life-changing experience with Jesus Christ in their whole lives. Or perhaps they have some vague memory of what it might have been like to go to Sunday school as a child. Maybe their grandma or grandpa actually took them to Sunday school, dropped them off outside on a Sunday morning. My dad used to do that with us when we were kids. He'd drop us off at, didn't really go himself, but he'd drop us off at Sunday school because, well, they thought it was a good thing. And uh, these days, of course, many of the people that we come into contact with Monday through Saturday, they would have to go back at least to their grandparents to find somebody who even had a nodding acquaintance with church. Most people have no idea about church whatsoever. They might have been to a wedding or a funeral in one of the mainstream denominations. And so their only impression of church might be a particular architecture or the curious clothing that a priest or, or a minister of religion wears. They have no inkling whatsoever about what a personal relationship with God through Jesus might be like. They don't understand things like creation. They don't understand things like original sin. They don't understand why it would ever be necessary for a man to die on our behalf. Because they don't understand anything at all about the sinful heart of humankind. So, as far as they are concerned, our whole way of thinking is quite foreign. And uh, some authors have suggested that one of the ways in which we can be effective ambassadors for Christ is to carry a faithful presence with us in whatever we do. And uh, the first way in which I chose to address this whole idea of faithful presence was to understand it from the perspective of a church that feels as if it is under siege. And uh, we can go outside and, and look in the media. If, if you listen to some of the intellectual uh, thought leaders of our nation, they're strongly atheist. They're, they're assertively, even aggressively atheist. Uh, there are many who assert, for example, that you know the church or, or religion has caused more deaths than anything else, that it's actually an evil thing because war is associated with religion. What they don't realise, of course, 
is that far more people have died through the activities of atheists in the 20th century and 21st century alone compared to the number that have been killed through the whole of human history through religious wars, which in fact are a minority of wars. Most wars have been fought for political, not for religious reasons. But the atheists, I'm not saying they're lying, they just don't know the truth. They don't know the sacrificial truth about the church. They don't know, for example, that at the time of the Reformation, the Catholic Church, although it was the largest economic enterprise on earth, it was also the largest social enterprise on earth. The monasteries used to hand out food and beer uh, twice a week in Europe to the poor people. Now, don't, don't think there was something terribly wrong with the beer. The beer was a lot safer to drink and a lot healthier for you than was the water because people generally didn't have access to clean, healthy water. And so the church down through the ages has actually been honouring Jesus Christ by the way in which it relates to other people. <coughs> there are those who say the church was wicked because of the Crusades. In fact, if you read Rodney Stark, who's a very careful historian, he, he uh, speaks of himself as an independent Christian. He, he, he's an academic at Wheaton College, which is one of the foremost Christian higher education institutions in the world. He doesn't go to church, though. He, see, he calls himself an independent Christian. But he's done some incredible research into the history of the church. And his research has really found that the, the Crusades were actually more about Islam than they were about Christianity. And that while it's true that Christians, some of, the, some of the knights, for example, yes, they did rape people, they did uh, pillage villages, but on the whole, the Christians actually conducted themselves very well indeed. The Inquisition was largely the Spanish government. It was political, it wasn't religious. And I did mention this, of course, when we were speaking earlier in the year, that, in fact, the church, which was the Catholic church at the time, had very high standards of proof. And the church very infrequently put anybody to death on charges of uh, being witches. It was actually the state that did the most. People criticised the church for wanting to rule the country the church in the early days was actually a very reluctant partner of the politicians. The church never wanted to get involved in politics. It was kind of dragged into it. The church never put up its hand and said, we want to rule the people. Because I think Christians have understood for a long time that the kingdom of God is not an earthly kingdom. <coughs> and so when we faithfully represent our God out there in the, in the marketplace, it's not about having dominion over people. If you go back to Genesis, you'll see God gave us dominion over all of creation, but not over each other. So we don't have... Your pastor does not have dominion over you. A husband does not have dominion over his wife. Parents don't have dominion over their children. We have dominion over all that God created except one another. So the role of the church is not to actually 
take over the marketplace, but the role of the church is to actually bring truth into the marketplace. And my passion is to bring God's truth into business and into employment. For others, you will have a different passion because God would have called you and equipped you differently. So we spoke about the church under siege and and what I wanted to do is to try to dispel some myths. Uh, The first one and one which really holds the church back so much is that God allows all the bad stuff to happen and he kind of sits back while it all unfolds. And even what we've heard from Dougal today tends to suggest that that's just plain not true. That God is active. You know, when God said to Moses, I am, what that means, when you have a look at the Hebrew and the the history of Israel, is I am the ever-present and active one. I am the ever-present and active one. God never just wound up this universe like a clockwork toy and then sat back to watch it all unwind. He never did that. God is actively intervening on our behalf all the time. So God doesn't let all the bad stuff happen. We talked about this word, a temptation. It's actually better translated, a trials or experiences. God never tempts us and God does not put bad stuff in our lives. Although we know that bad stuff happens. Bad stuff happens because the world is still subject to sin. Not necessarily your sin or my sin that's been dealt with at the cross. But the world is still marred by sin. Every human institution is marred by sin. Marriage is marred by sin. Family is marred by sin. Because not every child grows up in a loving environment. You see, it's marred by sin. Education is marred by sin. Politics is marred by sin. The arts, the media, they're marred by sin. Everything is marred by sin. There is nothing on earth that is perfect in Christ yet because sin is still in the earth. It will be dealt with at the second coming of Jesus. As Christians, though, it's our role to actually enforce the victory that Jesus Christ won at the cross over sin. Not over people, but over sin. That's our role right now, to enforce the victory. So God doesn't cause all this bad stuff to happen. And see, one of the questions that people who don't know Jesus or will always ask is, if God is so good, why does bad stuff happen? That's the answer. Now, it may not satisfy people, but the reason bad stuff happens is that Jesus hasn't, as it were, come back a second time to fully consummate what he achieved at the cross. In the meantime, it's the role of the church to stand in the gap and to enforce the victory. I talked about the temptation that we have as a church to retreat into a ghetto because there's this big bad world out there. It's it's comfortable for us to to form a close-knit community and build walls around it that are kind of impervious. We don't let other people in. So we become, in a way, an exclusive Sunday club. That is definitely not God's desire. Some of us react in the opposite way. And instead of trying to build ghettos, we 
try to build friendship with the world. And you know what? That's actually not an option for us. Certainly we need to be open to people around us. We need to be welcoming to people who don't know the Lord Jesus. But there's a big difference between having an open door and actually changing our own ways of behaving or indeed our own beliefs so that we become more conformed to the world. What we're exhorted to do, of course, in the book of Romans chapter 8 is to be transformed by the renewing of our mind and that is a process that happens as we surrender to the Holy Spirit and not be conformed to the world. I want to finish off our, our topic. I know that was a bit of a long-winded review, but it's a little while since we, we started on uh, this, this series. But I just want to touch, again from the book of James, and we've used the book of James almost exclusively, I want to touch on this notion that God is good. And you see, if God is a good God there can't actually be any bad in him. So God doesn't do bad things because there's no bad in him. If we have a look at James chapter 1, uh, I'm going to go through verses 16 to 18. I think it's, oh no, it does say 16 to 18 up there. So this is James chapter 1, and I'm reading from the New King James Version of the Bible if you want to find it on your phone. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruit of his creatures. So every good gift comes from the Father. And you know, it's worth reminding ourselves of this. When uh, we were sitting at breakfast this morning, we're just having a, a little conversation. You know how conversations just kind of bubble up in family. And we're just saying, what a sense of gratitude that we have. Partly because, as a family we were actually able to afford our weekend away. We actually went to the Marriott Hotel, which is a pretty good hotel. And uh, we were able to have you know, two, uh, three rooms, a room each, and we, we uh, got a pretty good deal because breakfast was thrown in and there was a $50 credit that we could use in any of the restaurants. Uh, they actually uh, gave us each a free bottle of wine, which we didn't drink because we weren't there long enough, but we might have it at Christmas time, who knows. Um, but we were just saying how grateful we are that we could do that because there's a lot of people in this world, like billions, who can't do that. But then the conversation turned to something which is far more important and far more valuable than the money we might have in our bank account. And that is the incredible value of family. But where does the whole idea of family come from? 
Well, it doesn't come from the modern secular humanists who are actually doing everything they can to rid the world of family. They want a gen what they call a genderless society. Gender, by the way, applies to language, not to people. People have sex. That is, pardon me, I didn't mean to go into an R-rated session here, but you're male or female, that's what the Bible says, and scientifically, that's what you are. So your sex is male or female. Maybe gender's up here in your mind, but they want to have a society in which there is no male or female. They want to have a society in which there is no family. Why? Satan hates family because family is the basis of civilization. Satan doesn't want to see families thrive. He doesn't want to see couples thrive. He doesn't want to see individuals thrive. But we were simply reminiscing this morning at how grateful we are for family. Good gift. A good gift that comes from God. It was his idea in the first place. His idea in the first place. And when you think about it, family is the basis for a, a civilization, for a civil world. It is so very important. And I can remember going through a period years ago, now it's probably 20 years, maybe even longer, when I, I wasn't terribly grateful. And I, I, there were a few things going on. I wasn't feeling so happy about this, that and the other. And God said to me, what is the thing you wanted most when you were a young man? And I said to him, family. And he said, well, what have you got? So I got family. <coughs> wow. Every good gift comes from the Father above. There's no shadow of turning in God. You see? He never for one moment thinks about being anything other than good. It never occurs to him, not even as a fleeting Thought in his mind never occurs to him because there is no shadow of turning. No shadow of turning. You know, he's not even like me because as a dad, the biggest fault I've ever had, I think, as a dad, even as a husband, is inconsistency. But God's not inconsistent because there's no shadow of turning in him. No shadow of turning. Of his own will. He brought us forth by the word of truth. That is amazing. The word of truth, of course, is Jesus Christ. That we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Isn't that a beautiful way of expressing what it means to be sons and daughters of the one true God, the one who created the heavens and the earth? We are creatures of his, the firstborn of his creatures. I do briefly want to address the whole issue though of those times when it's not so good, when we might feel we're being persecuted and when we're talking about the benefits of salvation earlier this year when, when I was focusing so much on, on, on health and uh, financial prosperity and, and social blessing and so on, I did take some time to point out that the one thing we're not promised is freedom from persecution. 
I don't know the answer to the why. I really don't know why that is. But Jesus made it very, very clear that we would be persecuted because of him. And of course we know that there are nations in which it's very dangerous to be a Christian. Where it's dangerous to be a Christian. Where to be a Christian actually risks death, torture, certainly separation from loved ones. So not everything always goes right for us because of persecution. But also because this world is marred by sin, bad stuff happens to good people. I don't like telling you this. I don't even like confronting this myself because I don't like bad stuff. It breaks my heart when I hear of people I care for for whom bad stuff happens. Even people I don't know. You know, when, when we hear on the news on Friday of a one-year-old run over by a taxi at Sovereign Island. He was uh, visiting with family from New Guinea. That breaks my heart because the world shouldn't be like that. That's not the way God intended it to be. And that was just an accident. But you see, these things happen because sin mars everything. Original sin, it mars everything. But let me assure you of this. Although God is not the cause of the bad stuff, He also will use it as a teaching moment. I must admit, when I heard of this news... It, you know, I thought of Evangeline, almost a year old, she's 11 months old, and how watchful we need to be. And I'm not making any comment about how watchful the parents... The, they're actually, um, I think, aunties, though they were extended family who were with this little baby. I'm not making any commentary whatsoever about whether they were taking good care of that baby. All I'm saying is that I thought of Evangeline and I just had a reminder of how careful we need to be. And yesterday, she's just started crawling a week or so ago where we're sitting by a pool and off she crawls. Where does she crawl to? The edge of the pool, of course. Isn't that what babies do? And it just reminded me, you know, you never take your eyes off a baby. See, even little things like that, God uses... As, as teaching points. I, I am a very blessed person. I, I don't have much in the way of tragedy in my life at all. So I can't, in a sense, speak from experience, but I've been around a long time and I've known a lot of people. And the one thing I'm certain of is that God never, ever lets us have any kind of experience without using it to somehow bless us, to, to make us grow. Right? We know that in all things, God causes good to come. And, and uh, you know, I, this person I used to work for, her little baby got run over by her own car and killed about two years ago. Terrible, terrible tragedy. But God even uses things like that. He doesn't cause it 
but he doesn't let it go without and and um Danny the the mum she's absolutely incredible she's an incredible mum and uh, she's got now a ministry in her life that grew out of this tragedy so God doesn't cause the tragedy in the first place but God makes it his business to bring good from all the stuff that goes wrong and so my exhortation to you is when the when stuff goes wrong look to God as teacher certainly also as as redeemer but look to God as teacher what can I take from this that will help me either be a more effective ambassador for Jesus Christ or that will help me minister to other people I've had experience with with depression I've got a lot of empathy for people who are depressed I I can pray with people who are depressed there's a lot of things I can share with them about my own healing from from depression so you see God can use something like that Satan would have wanted to use that either to break up our family or perhaps even to kill me but Jesus Christ rescued me from that pit and he put my feet firmly upon the rock of his truth and I've been able to draw on my experience to encourage others so God never caused my depression he healed me from that depression but he also uses it so that I can minister effectively to some people at least who may be having a similar experience so let me read for you from the book of James chapter 1 verses 2 through to 8 my brethren count it all joy when you fall into various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So count it all joy. That's not an easy thing to do, is it? When times are tough, when we're going through persecution or sickness or financial lack or when a loved one has been taken from us in difficult circumstances. I had a good mate who lived across the road from us who died from cancer almost exactly two years ago. To be perfectly honest, I still get a bit angry when I think about it because he was a wonderful man, a great husband, a great dad. He'd uh, migrated here from, from Malta in the early 1960s with nothing, couldn't read or write. He was learning to read just in the last year or so before he died. He uh, landed in Melbourne with a few friends. There wasn't a lot of well-paid work there, so they went up to North Queensland to cut cane. Back in those days, cane was cut by hand. 
He eventually saved up enough money to buy a property, actually became very, very wealthy, but the wealth never affected them because they were friends with us. <laughs> we went over for his 70th birthday party and, and got to know his family. And uh, he went to the doctor one day and come home with a, uh, a diagnosis of cancer, major operation, and a few weeks later he was dead. I hate that kind of thing. It makes me angry. Another guy I knew earlier this year committed suicide. It made me so angry. Because he was a psychologist, for goodness sake. He used to help people in the same situation, but one day he just decided it was all too much. And he was a Christian. He drove to New South Wales. He killed himself and left a note for his wife and his family. Bad stuff happens. I don't want to ruin your Sunday, but bad stuff happens. But see, the wisdom of the Word of God here Counting it all joy is not about having a thick skin and not caring. But it's about understanding God is not the cause. Sin is the cause. And God will use it to enable us to become more effective ambassadors of Christ. Or to actually grow ourselves as children of the living God. I want to read for you a poem written by Rudyard Kipling. And um, I, I don't think that they, they use Rudyard Kipling's poems in schools anymore. In fact, most uh, school kids wouldn't, wouldn't ever hear of Rudyard Kipling. He's not politically correct these days, not so much because of what he wrote, but because he was a very strong supporter of the British Empire. He was born in India... Spent a lot of his young life in the UK and ultimately uh, moved there where he wrote a lot of poetry and he wrote short stories and a few books. He uh, described himself, I think, as a... I've got it written down somewhere. Yes, he, he uh, once described himself as a God-fearing Christian atheist. <laughs> you go figure. So uh, I'm not suggesting necessarily that it was a Christian, but... This is a poem that my dad gave me many, many years ago when I was probably about 13 or 14 years of age and I had it framed. I don't know where it's ended up. I, I, I may still have it in my possessions somewhere. But uh, on rereading this poem a few weeks ago, I thought, my goodness me, there are echoes in here of the book of James that we've been focusing on. Uh, in particular, James 1, 2 to 4 and James 2, 1 to 4. And it's about basically staying focused on the truth. And I think for us, one of the most important ways that we can protect ourselves against a misunderstanding of the nature of God and of his word, that is that we understand that God is good and there is nothing bad in him. Now I've lost the rest of my thought. Oh, wow, it just went. I, like, I could feel it going. So, sorry about that, folks. I'll try and remember it next week. That's terrible when that happens. <laughs> anyway, that's because I'm not perfect, okay? But I'm going to count it all joy. And perhaps my memory will return. So, yes, uh, he was born in Bombay, now Mumbai, on the 30th of December in 1865, and he died in London on the 18th of January, 1936. 
That's, that's uh, a photo of him there, and that's his house uh, on, the, on the left-hand side. So I'm going to read the poem, If, to you. And uh, it's written, as it were, from a dad to his son, but it would apply to everybody, so it's not really focused only on boys. So this is the poem, If, by Rudyard Kipling. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, if you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowances for their doubting too, if you can wait and not be tired by waiting, or being lied about, don't deal in lies, or being hated, don't give way to hating, and yet don't look too good, nor talk too wise. If you can dream and not make dreams your master, if you can think and not make thoughts your aim, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two impostors just the same, if you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken, twisted by knaves and made a trap for fools, or watch the things you gave your life to broken and stoop to build them up with worn-out tools. If you can make one heap of all your winnings and risk it all on one turn of pitch and toss and lose and start again at your beginnings and never breathe a word about your loss. If you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after they have gone and so hold on when there is nothing in you except the will which says to them, hold on. If you can talk with crowds and keep your virtues or walk with kings and nor lose the common touch, if neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you, but none too much, if you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it, and which is 